<coughs> and today is the 13th of March 2018 and uh, tonight we're going to talk about one of our chants, we'll begin to talk about the, the full ancestral line. Um, we A couple of weeks ago now we had um, Sangha brainstorming and um, one of the things that came came up, I mean, many suggestions were made, we sort of did for people who weren't there, we did, we invited people to say what they felt was working, working well and what they wanted more of and what they wanted less of. And um, one of the things that came up out of the, of the brainstorming was wanting to have more explanation about the chants that we do. And um, we have this new chant called the Pool of Radiance, um, which is also um, a lot of names like the ancestral liners but I realized um, I want to talk about that I've been meaning to I've been saying little bits and pieces about of it about it um, in the past couple of years but I wanted to talk about it at greater length but in order to effectively talk about that I uh, really needed to look into our ancestral line a bit which is what it sort of has come out of now some of you here may not ever have chanted our ancestral line or heard it it's a long chant, mainly of names, and the two versions, there's, there's the full one, um, which is a complete line of the transmission of the Dharma from um, one generation to the next, going all the way back to the Buddha our own, of our own era, Shakyamuni, but actually stretching even further into the past with the six um, primordial Buddhas that we chant the names of that are prior to Shakyamuni Buddha. <clears throat> and we'll go into a little bit uh, more of, of that later on. And then we also have an abbreviated version which sort of mentions the, 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 main, the most important figures. Um, and it, it really is quite brief. It's sort of a highlights of the, of the long ancestral line. Uh, by contrast, our new chant, the Pool, pool of Radiance, as the name suggests, it's not a line, it's a pool. And we developed it um, based on one that was developed about 10 years ago in Sweden. Um, and it, it came out of a desire to um, include some women's names which don't appear in our, our lineage. And also to put in the names of masters that we're more familiar with because a lot of the ones in our ancestral line we don't know very much about. But there are masters from our koan work, from the many stories we tell, um, that we that we sort of have a more intimate relationship with, and so um, those are also included in the pool of radiance. And it it uh, instead of starting in the distant past and coming up to the present, the pool of radiance goes backwards, looks at uh, groups the different. Um, we, st we start with. Roshi Kaplow and go back to the, the Japanese names and then the Chinese names and the Indian names. And that's, it's really wonderful to have that and we've, it's been wonderful to go into the lives and learn about the people who we have in that chant. But I didn't want to um, abandon our ancestral line because it's, um, it's a very important part of our chants and it, it's very evocative. Um, it, it, it points to the importance of, of transmission in, uh, in Zen, um, to the handing on of, of the teaching from, 
from um, teacher to student. Whereas one um, teacher put it from warm hand to warm hand. It's pointing to the fact that our practice is something living and, um, and that these names we chant, when we chant this, this ancestral line, they come to life through our chanting and they, it's a way of reminding ourselves um, that the Buddha is actually right here, right now, in us, and nowhere else. Um, in many ways, um, our ancestral line is, is a kind of uh, uh, fiction. It's something that, that has been made up uh, over a number of centuries. Um, you could say it's, a, it's, like our f it's, it's, it's like an expression of our founding myth. Um, but as, as Roshi Kepler used to say, uh, myths express truths that are more profound than can be expressed by mere fact. Um, in, in, um, in reciting the names, we're, we're, we're really bringing alive this whole lineage um, and, and uh, and allowing it to keep on flowing down into, uh, into the present. Just, just a little bit of history before we get into some of the names. And um, we'll also sort of be looking at the history as we go through it. Um, the lineage um, in, its, in the form we, it's come to us really was first published around about the end of the, the Tang dynasty. So that's more than a thousand years after the time of the Buddha. Um, It took several several centuries, as I said, to develop, and um, it sort of grew out of biographies of great monks that were were um, circulating at the time. They were called the lamp records, and this is another this is another important image um, for us: the image of a candle flame being being passed from one candle to another, and the way in which flame that lights the next candle isn't diminished anyway by passing its light on to another candle. Um, this is another image for the transmission of, of the teaching. Also, um, we can see how it would be, how important it might be in within Chinese society, which is where it was developed, even though it stretched back into the Indian ancestors, um, monks and nuns were, were called home leavers and they left behind their families uh, to enter into the Buddha's family. And actually we still say this in our Jukai ceremony at the end, we say we have now all entered into the Buddha's family. And so it, that in Chinese culture, um, ancestors were incredibly important. Um, within the Confucian 
uh, culture. And so the, these Dharma lineages that developed in a sense, sense replaced the, the, the family tree of uh, the people who had entered into the, into the order. Um, can it perhaps get, get a sense of, of, of the feel for this, this importance of ancestors from our own um, um, the importance here in New Zealand of, in Maori culture of whakapapa a sense that the, the ancestors the tipuna are, are, are with us kind of backing us up and that we it's our job um, to pass that learning and that wisdom from the tipuna down to the mokapuna in the in the um, the repentance ceremony that we do there's a line about um, repaying repaying um, about the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the past were like us and we will in the future become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. In the earliest of these, um, these um, lineages, Bodhidharma uh, w was established as, as the 28th Indian patriarch and so this was something um, important to sort of give Bodhidharma as the founder of, of the Zen school in, in China. And so calling him the 28th Indian Patriarch was kind of way of, of giving Chan or Zen um, a good pedigree. And he was also um, known as the first um, patriarch of Chinese Chan. There's a little bit um, a quote here from Andy Ferguson who wrote this great book on, on all the ancestors called Zen's Chinese Heritage. And he divides uh, the history of, of Chan up into different periods. And the earliest period um, he calls the legendary period. And he says about it, the legendary period, stretching from Bodhidharma's arrival in China during the late 5th century until the middle of the Tang dynasty around 765 Common Era, has left us only a sketchy literary record. Modern scholars dismiss many of the era Zen stories as apocryphal, or at best of dubious origin. Myth, magic and facts are tightly fused in Zen's early history. The writings handed down to us were recorded long after the events they describe. These are often stories about the Zen ancients rather than what was said by them. The writings and legends of the first ancestor Bodhidharma fit into this framework. Legends of this Indian sage help create Zen's mythical ethos, a vital component at the source of the religion. Scholars often do not accept that the writings attributed to Bodhidharma were actually written by him, or indeed that Bodhidharma even existed. 
Luckily, the legends surrounding Bodhidharma's life are not diminished by the lack of solid evidence about him. Moreover, some stories about Zen's earliest historical period seem to fit well with known historical facts. The gaps in Zen's early record coincide with periods of known suppression of Buddhism by the government or, by, or with times of civil unrest and destruction. In such circumstances, it is not surprising that, without a consistent written record, Zen's early history was embellished. Uh, we have, for example, in stories around Bodhidharma that he brought tea to China and that so he could, could stay meditating without falling asleep. He is said to have, have cut off his eyelids and where he threw them on the ground, a tea bush sprouted. You think of the importance of tea in China and you get some, some sense of the, the, um, the centrality of um, Bodhidharma in um, early Chinese culture, Chinese culture of that time and afterwards for many, many centuries. And still, if, if you um, go to China now, um, very often in, in gift shops there will be little um, figurines of, of Bodhidharma, Dharma. So he's still a folk, he's still a, a considered part of um, folklore in China. So um, once, once this um, line from the Buddha to Bodhidharma had been established, then, then it was also traced out from Bodhidharma to Hui Nung, the sixth ancestors. Sixth ancestor. And after that, after we get to the Hui Nung, um, the lineage starts to, to branch out in different di directions. And um, uh, just to get some idea of that, I brought a chart along which people can have a look at during, at, during our tea. You can see how, how complex the, the lineage becomes after, after the Huaynang. But we're just going to trace one line on that, on that um, complex lineage chart, and that's the line that comes down to us today. And I don't think we're going to, to um, get right through the, the lineage today. But um, what we're going to do is just is just work our way through some of some of the, this beginning part of it at least, and and explore um, a few of these these uh, these names a little bit. But firstly, we're just going to have a look at um, the opening lines before we start chanting the names. Um, the leader chants, O awakened ones, may the power of your samadhi sustain us. We now return the merit of our chanting to, and then we all start in with the names, Vipassian, Buddha, Honored One, Shikin, Buddha, Honored One, so forth. Um, so right at the start is this direct 
address to the awakened ones. Oh, awakened ones, we're calling on them. In our, in our memorial prayer, we actually ask the Buddhism Bodhisattvas to come forth. What does that mean? To where do they come? From where do they come? In what sense can we call them forth? Oh, awakened ones, may the power of your samadhi sustain us. What does this mean? Samadhi, um, I'll give you a definition. This is from the Three Pillars of Zen. This term has a variety of meanings. In Zen, it implies not merely equilibrium, tranquility, and one-pointedness, but a state of intense yet effortless concentration, of complete absorption of the mind in itself, of heightened and expanded awareness. Samadhi and Bodhi are identical from the point of view of enlightened Bodhi-mind. Seen from the developing stages leading to Satori awakening, however, Samadhi and enlightenment are different. And there's a little um, bit here about Bodhi as well. Bodhi is usually translated as wisdom, intrinsic wisdom. Rishi Kaplow calls it the inherently enlightened heart-mind, also the aspiration toward perfect enlightenment. So this, this word samadhi encompasses a great deal. But at the core of it is the sense of, of absorption, of um, an experience in, a, 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 in which there's no inside or outside, no subject standing against an object, but just this absorption in, in this. So it's, we're, there's an assumption made in our, in our calling out <coughs> To the awakened ones, that in some way the samadhi of all these great masters, stretching back uh, 2,500 years to the Buddha and then back beyond eons, to these um, primordial Buddhas, that in some sense that the power of their meditation is still present. 
and we can in some sense tap into that intensity, that concentration, that energy. It's a little bit like how we can um, today listen to the sound of cosmic background radiation shortened to CBR sometimes referred to as the sound of the Big Bang that still resonates through the universe and you don't need particularly special equipment to be able to to hear this the sound you just just need an ordinary kind of radio receiver what might the sound of of samadhi be can anybody hear it right now This, this wish to be sustained by uh, the power of samadhi of the, these ancient masters is a, it's a little bit like taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha Buddha being our enlightened nature, the Dharma, the laws of the universe and the Sangha, those who are sincerely practicing that Dharma So we, we, it's like we're, we're, with this first line, we're really listening to what we're saying when we say it, then we're, in a sense, we're tuning our radio receiver to the energy, the samadhi of the Buddha and all the masters. And then we say, we now return the merit of our chanting to, and then we start to recite the names. talked a little bit about this um, a few weeks ago but just to, to again um, look into this term merit which is another very very rich um, term in Buddhism um, merit is, is what accumulates as a result of our um, good deeds you could say um, as we as we do we do wholesome things speak wholesomely think uh, think wholesomely then our character is imbued with wholesomeness which is another way of saying um, positive habits of mind and body uh, one one teacher Um, defines merit as positive potentials. Um, you, you could way we say we're we're um, um, creating um, uh, positive neural pathways 
which can can ripen into happiness, you could say. So can we give away those positive potentials? And and another question is Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and, and masters, great ancestors, surely they don't need them, haven't they got them in spades already? One way to understand this, and it's, it, it's, it's pervasive through the whole of Mahayana Buddhism, um, this giving away of merit, is, is that it's a way of, of counteracting any um, any temptation we might have to to sort of engage in spiritual materialism and think about how we could could pile up um, these positive potentials for ourselves so if we're if we're, if we're saying this line to really try and be sincere about it and really really give away let go of anything we might have acquired. It's really, it's really a, um, a practice that is aimed at cultivating a spirit of, of, of generosity, of, of open-handedness, let's say, which is, of course, a positive potential. So one of the one of the things with doing this is realizing that how can you how could merit be be um, given away but actually it can be if you think of it practically um, if you if you engage in activities that are positive then um, it's going to be easier to, to do positive things. Say you, you come and sit and then and you, you, you get to some place of, of greater um, gatheredness and concentratedness and ease. Then when you go home you'll be able to be more patient with people. Say you say somebody snaps at you, you may find that you don't react quite as in quite a, such a reflex manner as you might have otherwise. So things won't escalate. That's you could see that as giving away merit. But it's like a kind of um, um, uh, treasure chest that 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 never empties. The more you dole out from it, the fuller it it, it becomes. Then we get into uh, our actual names here, and the first the first seven 
uh, Buddhas. Vipassan Buddha, Shikin Buddha, Vishvabhu Buddha, Krakuchanda Buddha, Kanakamuni Buddha, Kashapa Buddha, and then Shakyamuni Buddha. And after each one we say, Honored One. So we can take this, this, first, this first group of these Buddhas um, all together and, and they're often called the seven Buddhas of the past. And the, the first three, Vipassan, Shikin and Vishvabhu, um, are actually three Buddhas from a previous Kalpa, uh, the, what's known as the Glorious Kalpa. And then the last four are from the present Kalpa, which is called the Auspicious Kalpa. Um, and, and a Kalpa is an, an immeasurably long time. Um, there's different ways that um, that a Kalpa is measured, but, but um, they're all aimed at just completely boggling the mind. Um, Kalpa is as long as it takes for um, a heavenly being to come down with a silk scarf and lightly um, waft it over the top of an um, extremely tall mountain and when the mountain is worn away to nothing then that's how long a Kalpa lasts. Um, other things like that. So in, these first, in, in this first little list um, we have these three Buddhas from a previous Kalpa and then four, Krakuchanda, Kanakamuni, Kashapa and Shakyamuni from our present Kalpa. So Shakyamuni is not the first Buddha of our Kalpa but actually the fourth. Um, and uh, just as an example, the, the, the one that's um, at the beginning of this little grouping, Krakuchanda, um, He's, he's also, besides being the first one for this Kalpa, he's the 28th named Buddha of our world system. And all of these Buddhas, you can look up their little biographies. And for Krakachanda, it says that he was 4,000 years old when he renounced the worldly life. And they'll give a little biography which is very similar to the ones we have for Shakyamuni. So he will have lived in India at a certain time, um, it, um, at a certain point when he stopped his austerities and a maiden would come and offer him rice milk. So they're like little mirror, almost mirror images of, of um, the lives of the other Buddhas. Or Kashapa Buddha, the one immediately preceding Shakyamuni, is, said he, di he died when he was 40,000 years old. And it's said that there'll be, and if Shakyamuni is the fourth, there will be a total of 1,000 Buddhas in our world cycle. And of course also in Buddhism, in the sutras, there's often reference to there being other world systems. They sometimes say things like there are as many world systems as there are sands of the Ganges. And the sand of the Ganges is, is, is like flour, so it's extremely fine. So um, as, many, as many world systems as, as there are sands of the Ganges. Again, these, these mind-bogglingly large, large uh, dimensions to, 
to kind of get us out of our of our narrow world and our narrow view and also with these these um, six uh, Buddhas of the past it's a reminder to us that Buddhahood isn't something um, singular or or isolated or, or a fluke of some kind but in the in this vast cosmology it's seen as something that's endlessly recurring stretching back into into the um, time immemorial as well as throughout multiple dimensions through through the multiverse So another way of understanding this is, is really seeing that, that there's, there's um, the unfolding of Buddhas can happen any place, any time. It really, it really um, wipes out any, any excuses we might have for not engaging in this work of realizing the true nature. Then after, after Shakyamuni, we get um, a, an ongoing list of, of Indian names. And we'll just um, have a look at just, um, a few of these. So right after Shakyamuni is Mahakashapa. And we have a, we have a great source for all these um, masters in one of the koan collections that we take up um, called the Denko Roku. And this was put together by a Japanese master. All the other koan collections we work on are, ch are from Chinese masters. But Denko Roku was um, compiled by Keizan, who was um, two generations after Master Dogen, so his, his Dharma grandson. And in this, this collection, he goes through each of the um, masters in our ancestral line, because Kazan is, all, of course, also in our, our, own, our own lineage, and uh, tells a story about their own re reception of the Dharma, their, 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 the moment of the transmission. And he goes all the way up to um, his own teacher, Kohen Ajo, who was um, a Dharma successor to Master Dogen. So the very first, very first um, case in, in this collection is the Buddha himself, Shakyamuni Buddha. And it goes like this. Um, Shakyamuni Buddha, seeing the morning star, realized enlightenment and said, I and all sentient beings of the great earth have this, at the same moment attained the way. Let's read that again. Shakyamuni Buddha, seeing the morning star, realized enlightenment and said, I and all sentient beings of the great earth have in the same moment attained the way. 
this this um, coming to awakening on upon seeing the morning star isn't found in any other tradition. It's it's just a part of the Zen tradition. The Buddha glancing up and seeing Venus in the morning dawn sky, and having this this profound experience. Seeing something in this world of ours, not leaving it, but seeing it clearly. I and all sentient beings of the great earth have in the same moment attained the, the way. We often um, use a different account of what the Buddha said on his Great Awakening. Uh, in workshops I always mention the one in the Amvatamska Sutra where he says, wonder of wonders, all beings are Buddhas, endowed with wisdom and compassion and virtue, lacking nothing. And it is only because their minds have been turned upside down by delusive thinking that they fail to perceive this. And we use that one because it's, it's such a perfect little summary of the teachings. But this one, there's something really moving about it. I and all sentient beings of the great earth have in the same moment attained the way. That at this moment, this moment of illumination, all beings everywhere on this earth were also illumined. They too attained the way. No separation. Everybody woke up. Because there is only one universe. All the beings on the earth are Buddhas. Buddha here is speaking, um, he's making this exclamation from the depths of his samadhi, where he um, was completely connected to everything on this earth and beyond. using the word connected is already too much, is saying too much. Just this, just wonder of wonders. Then Kazan adds a verse. One branch from the old plum tree extends splendidly forth. 
thorns become attached to it in time. One branch from the old plum tree extends splendidly forth. I'm not sure if this was was after, probably it was, but the um, the plum blossom became um, the emblem of the Soto school in Japan. Um, in Japan, the, the, the plum tree is the first tree to flower at the end of the winter. So it has a particularly powerful um, connotation in, in, um, in Japan. And these exquisite flowers emerging out of bare branches, out of the barrenness of the, of the winter, the cold, often still when there's still snow on the ground, the plum blossom will come out. What does this mean? Thorns become attached to it in time. There are, I looked this up, there are varieties of plums um, that have, uh, have thorns on their branches. This is one of the points when working on this koan. What does this mean? Time is nearly up, so we'll just look at one more and then continue next time. The next person in our line is Mahakashapa. So the uh, Buddha's disciple who, who became the, the, the leader of the Sangha after the, after the Buddha's Parinirvana, the first council. And again, this is a story about the Buddha and Mahakashapa that, that only is found in Zen literature. Very, very famous one. When the world-honored one held up a flower and twinkled his eyes, Mahakashapa broke into a smile. The world-honored one said, I have the treasure eye of the true Dharma and the ineffable mind of Nirvana. I entrust this to Mahakashapa. So this is a very, very famous scene. The Buddha holding up a flower. And of all the assembly, only Mahakashapa understands that the Buddha is giving a complete presentation of the truth. And he smiles. And then, then the Buddha says, I, um, I have a tr the treasure eye of the true Dharma and the ineffable mind of Nirvana. I entrust this to Mahakashapa. So it's this moment of transmission. But what was transmitted? This, this um, same story appears also in the Mumon Khan, and Mumon comments on it. 
and he's he's in the beginning of this he refers to golden-faced kudon which is just like a nickname for the buddha he says golden-faced kudon is certainly outrageous he turns the noble into the lowly and sells dog flesh advertised as sheep's head sheep's head was a delicacy though with some genius however suppose, supposing that at the time all the monks had smiled how would the all-including eye of the true dharma have been handed on or if kashapa had not smiled how could he have been entrusted with it if you say that the true dharma can be handed on anyway the golden-faced old man with his loud voice deceived the simple villagers. If you say it can't be transmitted, why did the Buddha say he had handed it on to Kashapa? Is there some thing that gets passed? But surely all the teaching says that it's not something that we have to acquire. It's not something we have to get from anywhere, this, this realization, because it's who we are. We just have to, to see it. And that's what the verse, what Master Kazan's verse points to. He says, remote and deep in the cloudy valley, there is still a sacred pine that passes through the cold of many years. So we can imagine this great old gnarled tree bristling with needles in this, in this cold, snowy valley, completely shrouded in mist, invisible, not seen. And yet there, powerful, majestic tree, ancient, full of life. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>